Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Irish Times. In June 2019, Conor Gallagher writes, An Accretial Murder Trial, The Complete Story. Listeners, this is the third instalment in a five-part series. The full series can be found on the NOAA app under the story titled Anacresial Murder Trial. Arrest, Interview and Charge A week after Anna's body was found, Garthy were granted a warrant for the arrest of both boys. From the very beginning of the investigation, concessions were made for the boys' age some were required by law, others were put in place at the discretion of the Gardaí, lawyers and judges. Both boys' parents were informed on the evening of May 23rd they would be arrested the following day. The parents were asked to bring them to the Garda station in the morning. However, they were not told searches of their homes would take place immediately after the arrests. Inspector O'Neill told his team these searches were to be carried out with the utmost discretion. Gardy used rental cars instead of patrol cars to get there. They wore plain clothes and placed seized items in evidence bags, which were in turn put in black sacks before being taken out of the houses. On his arrest, Boyer was interviewed in Clondalkin Garda Station in the company of his father and solicitor, Donna Malloy. As with Boy B, Gardy started by asking him if he knew the difference between right and wrong. Right would be leaving the door open for somebody, while tripping somebody up or stealing a chocolate bar is wrong. Boy A told Detective Gartha Marcus Roundtree and Tomas Doyle. He explained the difference between truth and lies by saying, Truth is if you tell somebody what happened. A lie is if you don't tell somebody what happened. Asked about his interests, Boyer said he liked anatomy, the human body, and inner life, the skeleton. He said he liked anatomical drawing. The detectives asked if he liked drawing live people. No, more evolutionary, he responded. During interview two, Boyer gave Garthy much the same story they had heard from Boy B., that he had met Anna in the park that day but was not with her in the lead up to the time when she was reported missing. He was shown footage from various CCTV cameras and at one point said two people caught on camera could have been the ones who beat him up. That might be good news, he said. Is there any more footage? Those figures were actually Boy B and Anna. Detective Gartha Doyle then told the boy Anna's blood was found on his boots. Are you joking me? Boy A asked. You can't be serious. The interview paused there as Boy A asked for some air. His solicitor asked him if he was going to be sick 
and one of the Gardaí got him a glass of water. When questioning resumed, Doyle said, What I'm saying to you is the only place you could have got the blood on your boots was in that room. So, were you in that room? No, he replied. The detectives showed Boyer a photograph of the tape found around Anna's neck. Boyer said he had never possessed tape like that. Asked about the search results on his phone, Boyer said the torture methods result came up when he was searching for horror films online. He said he wasn't interested in torture films. Despite being presented with strong forensic evidence, Boyer did not admit any involvement in the murder. Most of his responses were of the no comment or I don't know variety. Detectives were disappointed. The forensics were strong, but without admissions, Boyer might be able to claim that he acted in self-defence or that he never meant to kill Anna. Nine miles away in Finglas Garda Station, the interviews with Boy B were going much better for Gardy. After eventually telling Gardy during his fifth interview that he heard Anna scream, the boy gradually admitted more and more. This culminated in Boy B telling Daly and Gannon that Anna had gone into room one with Boy A. Despite being told to leave by Boy A, Boy B decided to explore the rest of the house. Then the sound of shuffling caused him to run to room one, where he saw Boy A kind of flip Anna. He described a judo-type move to the detectives. Boy A started choking her and pulling off her clothes, he said. Anna was crying and saying, No, no, don't do this. He said at this point both Boy A and Anna turned to look at him standing in the doorway and this caused him to run away. Boy A had a blank look on his face, he said. It still wasn't the truth, but it was as close as the detectives could get in the limited time they could detain Boy B. The detectives, who were being advised by a specialist from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation, wondered if Boy B's account could be used to get Boy A talking over in Clondalkin Garda Station. Perhaps Boy A would realise all the blame was being put on him and might want to defend himself. A few of the most relevant pages of Boy B's fifth interview were copied and quickly printed out before being sent across town to Detectives Rowntree and Doyle. In their sixth and final interview, the detectives read the pages to Boy A before asking if there was anything he wanted to add. Boy B is lying, that is all, the boy replied. On the afternoon of Thursday, May 25th, ten days after Anna's murder, an official from the Director of Public Prosecution's office called Inspector Mark O'Neill and gave permission for Boy A to be charged with murder. The charge was put to him at one minute past four at Clondalkin Garda Station, just before the 24-hour time limit for questioning expired. Neither he nor his father, who was also present, made any reply. An hour later, he was brought in a Garda van, in the company of his parents, to the Children Court in Smithfield, Dublin. His first court appearance of many. Gardy normally publicly announce arrests and murder investigations shortly after they occur, particularly in high-profile cases. But here an exception was made. 
The arrest of the boys was not made public until just before boy A was due in court. At the time, Gardy said it was concerned about vigilante behaviour against the boys' families. Local Gardy would later mount discreet extra patrols around their neighbourhoods to ensure the family's safety. The Children's Court is a bleak, grey and brownstone building on the corner of Smithfield Square. Inside and up the stairs are two cramped courtrooms, although usually only one is in use. Every day a steady stream of children pass through the court, usually on relatively minor charges such as public order offences, drug possession and theft. Jail terms are rare and the vast majority of defendants enter early guilty pleas. The children's court is effectively a district court, the lowest tier of the criminal justice system. Like a district court, there is no jury and a judge may only impose a maximum of 12 months for any one offence. For this reason, Boyer's case was never going to stay there. The legislation compels children court judges to transfer murder and rape cases to the central criminal court. Once there, children accused of such crimes are effectively tried as adults. A full jury hears the case and the judge has a much wider array of sentencing power. Fifteen minutes after the guard the van arrived at Smithfield, Boyer appeared in the courtroom with his parents. Also packed into the room were two solicitors, two detectives, three journalists and Judge John O'Connor. The judge told the boy's mother she could sit beside him if she wished. His grandfather entered a short time later and was granted permission to stay. Asked by Judge O'Connor if it was his first time in court, the boy replied, yes. At that early stage, the priority for the boy's family was getting bail. Oberstown Children Detention Campus in Lusk, County Dublin, is the only facility in the state for holding underage detainees. It is not a particularly pleasant place for anyone, but a sheltered 13-year-old with no criminal record was likely to find it especially tough. As a district court judge, O'Connor had no power to grant bail in murder cases. The boy would have to apply to the High Court at a later date. The judge remanded boy A to Oberstown, allowing him a few moments with his parents before departing. The boy looked confused as he was ushered out of the courtroom. He walked with a pronounced limp. The evidence against Boyer accumulated quickly once he was charged. During the search of his house, Gardy found a backpack in his bedroom containing gloves, knee pads, shin guards, a scarf like a snood garment and a homemade mask. This would soon become known among investigators as the murder kit. A skull-like mask would become one of the most striking pieces of evidence in the case. It was skin-coloured and covered only the top half of the face. Eye and nose holes had been cut out and sharp teeth had been cut into the upper jaw and painted red. Anna's blood was found on the inside and outside of the mask, as well as on the knee pads, gloves and the backpack itself. The gloves were particularly important to the Garda case as they explained why no fingerprints were found at the scene. An examination of two phones found in Boy A's bedroom revealed almost 12,500 images. 
the vast majority of which were pornographic. One featured a man in a balaclava looking at a semi-naked woman, while another showed a man choke a woman as another man watched. The phone's hard drive showed several pornographic videos had been accessed online, including one with a title referring to a woman called Anastasia. Another referred to Russian teens. Perhaps even more concerning was evidence of searches for child porn, horse porn and dead boy prank in abandoned haunted school. When the trial started the following year, none of these details would be heard by the jury. Gardy also found witnesses to bolster their case against Boy A. A dog walker had made a statement saying he saw a boy roughly matching his description making a beeline for the abandoned house on May 14th. A school friend told them Boy A appeared agitated and fidgety in the days after Anna went missing. When the analysis of the semen staining on Anna's top showed it matched Boy A's DNA, Gardy got permission to charge him with aggravated sexual assault, with the aggravated part referring to the extreme violence involved. The new evidence also allowed them to re-arrest Boy B for further questioning. Boy B was arrested again by appointment on July 8th and brought to Lucangarda station, where he was interviewed another three times by Daly and Gannon. Daly went through the same procedure as before, gently coaxing the boy to reveal more about what happened that day. This time, Boy B said his co-accused wore the mask, which he described as a zombie mask, when he attacked Anna. He described it as a really cool mask which Boy A had made the previous Halloween. Boy B gave the guardie some more details about what he saw, including that he had entered the house alone first and picked up a stick there, but he continued to deny any involvement in the attack. He also told Gardy of a conversation he had with Boyer the month before Anna's murder. He described the conversation as going like this. Hey, want to kill somebody? asked Boy A. No, replied Boy B. Ah, here, why not? Because it's retarded. Ah, oh, come on. Who are you planning on killing? Anna Creasel. In your dreams. Boy B said he presumed his friend was messing and that he always said things like that. He repeated that he had no idea what his friend was planning on May 14th. Why didn't you do anything in the room? Daly asked. Because I was scared. I was shocked. I didn't know what to do because my brain was frozen. Frozen in place. I didn't know what to do. He lied to Gardy the day after Anna went missing because he was just trying to forget about it and pretend nothing happened. Did you not think you owed it to Anna and her family? Daly asked. The boy replied he was scared of being framed by boy A. He said he was ashamed of not helping Anna that day. But you could have saved her, the detective said. I know. Why didn't you try and save her? I don't know. Daly accused the boy of telling lie after lie after lie, telling him, you go and collect a girl that boy A wants to kill and you bring her to an abandoned house and you, in your words, hand over that girl to boy A, the girl he said he wanted to kill. And then you were deceptive afterwards. You lie to everybody. Lie, lie, lie. 
You're in a corner and you try to wiggle out of it by telling a story to suit. Do you see how this looks for you? Boy B said that he did. Detective Garda Daly put it to Boy B that he let a charade play out in the days after Anna went missing as people searched for her while he knew she was in the abandoned house. I didn't know he would murder her, Boy B said. I kept thinking to myself, this isn't real, this this isn't happening. I kept thinking Boy A wouldn't do this. It's not like him. The detective suspected that Boy B still wasn't telling the entire truth but they had reached the point where they had to either charge or release him. He was released while the matter was considered by the DPP. Four days later, Boy B was re-arrested and charged with Anna's murder. He made no reply. Bail In the children court that day, he addressed the hearing twice, once to confirm he had never been in court before and once to ask if he could go to the bathroom. Like his co-accused, he would have to apply to the High Court for bail. Proceedings moved remarkably quickly once the accused were charged. There is usually a delay between 18 months and two years between the point of charge and the beginning of a murder trial. Sometimes, depending on legal issues, it takes much longer. The speed of preparations in this case was almost unheard of, especially for a trial involving a long list of witnesses and a huge amount of forensic and CCTV evidence. In the back offices of Garda stations, orders came down that work on the Crejo case was to be prioritised. Analysis took days rather than weeks and restrictions on overtime were eased. In FSI, staff came in on evenings and weekends to work on the case. Later, the Central Criminal Court would be asked to clear a non-negotiable four-week period for the trial in the first half of 2019. Part of the reason for the speed of proceedings is that, at first, it looked like the accused might not be granted bail before the trial. The authorities did not want to keep such young children, who enjoyed the presumption of innocence, locked up for longer than necessary. Boyer would spend over two months in custody before eventually being granted bail in the High Court on August 2nd. The social justice charity Extern, which is often used by the court in complex cases, was asked to provide support and supervision to the boy to ensure he complied with the bail conditions. Boy B spent just over a month in custody before being granted bail on August 21st. Both children would be free, albeit heavily supervised, until the start date of their trial in April 2019. Trial Preparations The legal age of criminal responsibility in Ireland is 12 years old, but this drops to 10 when rape or murder is alleged. At 13 years old, boys A and B became the youngest people in the history of the state to be charged with murder. Planning for the trial began at an early stage with Mr Justice Paul McDermott assigned to hear it. Senior counsel Brendan Grehan, a criminal barrister with huge experience in high-profile trials such as those of former Anglo-Irish Bank CEO David Drum and serial killer Mark Nash, would lead the case for the state. The judge and barristers would not wear wigs or robes and the accused would not be required to sit in the defendant's area. 
Instead, they would be allowed to sit beside their parents in the public gallery. The boys and their families would be allowed to enter and exit the Criminal Courts of Justice, CCJ, on Parkgate Street, Dublin 7, through side entrances, and separate rooms would be provided for each of them where they could relax and consult with lawyers during court downtime. As per the Children Act, the general public would not be permitted at the trial. The reason for this is twofold. To protect the accused's identity and to make the courtroom a less intimidating place. Bona fide journalists would be permitted in court. The murder and the investigation had attracted huge public interest so far and the prosecution feared the court would be packed with reporters, negating any efforts to minimise the intimidating atmosphere. They considered asking for a cap on the numbers of journalists permitted in court. Allowing them to view proceedings via video link from another room was also considered. In the end, the media would be asked to self-regulate their numbers with the implication that the court would intervene if necessary. Guilty pleas are extremely rare in murder trials as the offence carries an automatic life sentence on conviction, no matter what approach the accused takes. As there is no sentencing discount for a guilty plea, defendants reason they have little to lose by taking a chance on a trial. Even if the evidence is damning, they may be acquitted on a technicality or because of a deficiency in the investigation. The dynamic changes if the accused is a minor. The Children Act is silent on whether the automatic life sentence applies to children convicted of murder, but the prevailing legal opinion is that it does not and that judges may impose a lesser sentence if appropriate. Pre-trial, Boyer's lawyers concentrated on applying to have the indictment served, i.e. having Boy A tried separately to Boy B. Their reasoning was the jury was bound to be prejudiced against their client by hearing Boy B repeatedly accuse their client of attacking Anna during his interviews. The rules of evidence state the interviews of one defendant cannot be used against a co-accused. Boyer's defence team argued that the jurors could not help but be influenced by the content of the interviews, even if they were warned it was not relevant to the case against their client. Their application before McDermott failed. It would be a distortion of the factual background if the entire factual matrix of what happened in the lead up to the death of Miss Creasel was not set out in full to the jury. The judge ruled on April 12th. He undertook to give jurors strong warnings about not relying on Boy B's interviews when considering the case against Boy A. Compared to Boy A, Boy B's defence was much easier to predict. There was no forensic evidence linking him to the murder scene. In fact, the vast majority of the evidence against him came from his own mouth during his eight Garda interviews. If he had remained silent, it is highly likely he would never have been charged. The priority for Boy B's defence was to minimise the damage done in those interviews, particularly by the many lies he had told two detectives. Gardy had stuck rigidly to the rules when questioning the boy, meaning there was little chance of getting the interviews excluded from the trial on the basis they were coercive or oppressive. 
In early 2019, his legal team asked Dr. Colm Humphreys, an experienced psychologist specialising in childhood trauma, to examine Boy B and the interview tapes. Having done so, Humphreys authored a report diagnosing the boy with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, as a result of witnessing the attack on Anna. This PTSD contributed to the boy telling the Gardaí untruths in an effort to protect himself, he wrote. The doctor said it was his opinion that Boy B had no knowledge of what was going to happen to Anna that day. He said the boy was sexually naive and had gone to the house with Anna and Boy A in the hope of watching them snogging. The defence planned to call Humphreys as a witness to explain that Boy B's lies were the result of trauma rather than an effort to hide his guilt. Calling him as a witness carried a risk, however. During Boy B's sessions with the doctor, he had given him information about what he saw in the abandoned house that day, information he had failed to give Gardy. The boy told the doctor he saw Boy A standing over Anna with his trousers open during the attack and that he saw Anna gasping before going silent. If Humphreys gave defence evidence, he would likely be open to cross-examination on these matters, reinforcing the notion that Boy B continued lying to Gardy up to his final interview. That was the third instalment of Anna Creasel Murder Trial, The Complete Story. It was written by Connor Gallagher and read by Gronia Brookfield. For Noah. Be sure to continue listening to part four of this five part series on the Noah app. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.